If you're brand new, maybe you're just joining us today for the first time, maybe you're watching online for the first time or gathered here in person, uh, we are doing a series in the life of David. We're calling it the Gospel According to David because the story of David's life and the grace that God shows us in all of his dealings with David is a, paints a very profound picture of what it means to live life in the kingdom of God. Jesus is, of course, called throughout his life and ministry, the son of David. So there's a sense in which David fulfills all of the promises of God. And this morning, we're going to look at one of the most amazing promises in the scripture, the covenant that God makes with David from 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll be reading verses 1 through 17. This is God's word. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd the people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house." When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for these remarkable promises. We thank you for the covenant that you have made with David, and the covenant that you have made with us, sons and daughters of David, who have been adopted into your family through faith in Jesus Christ the son of David, the true temple, the king, 
of all nations. Hear our prayer, for we pray in his matchless and glorious name. Amen. What would you say if someone offered to give you a house? I would probably say what Nathan said in verse 3. Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Do you know why? Because that's what you say when someone offers to give you a house. You don't say, well, I think i got to go home and pray about this. That's what Christians say when we don't want to do something. Do you want to organize the Christmas party next year? Well, I think i got to go home and pray about that. That means no. I have cracked the code. And when people tell me that they want to go home and pray about something, that is something that they do not want to do. But when God says, I want to give you a house, when David says, I want to build a house for the Lord, you say yes. Now, imagine what you would say if someone said, not only do I want to build you, give you a house, I want to build you a house. It can be anything that you want it to be. It can be as big as you want it to be. It can be as fancy as you want it to be. Ten bedrooms, ten bathrooms, ten car garage, indoor pool, tennis court, game room, movie room, craft room, horse stables, golf course, shooting range, art studio, whatever you want it to be. Money is not an obstacle. You have a blank check to do whatever you want to do. What would you say? Well, after the smelling salts wore off, I would probably say yes. And you would probably say yes. And everyone would say yes. God said no. God said no. God said, not only, David, are you not going to build a house for me, I'm going to build a house for you. And not only am I going to build you a house, a simple construction of cedar and wood and stones, I'm going to give you a dynasty. I'm going to build you a legacy. One of your children is going to sit on the throne forever. Forever? How is that possible? What kind of king rules forever? Decades, sure. Centuries, perhaps. But forever? How can the son of David rule forever? How can we live in the house of God forever? This morning we're going to look at one of the most important stories in the Bible. It's not as famous as the story of David and Goliath. It's not as memorable as the story of David dancing before the Lord with all of his might like Kevin Bacon and Footloose. And yet, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says this chapter, this is the dramatic and theological center of the entire Samuel corpus. Indeed, this is one of the most crucial texts in the Old Testament for evangelical faith. Why? The question is why? What does this passage teach us about God? What does this passage teach us about sin? What does this passage teach us about the gospel of God's grace? What's more important? David building a house for God... Or God building a house for David. 
King Solomon, David's son, eventually did build God a house, the temple, that's part of the covenant. And so we know it's not wrong to build church buildings, but at the same time, I think perhaps King Solomon had it right when he observed, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This morning, we're going to look at the story of David and the promise. Just two points this morning. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Here they are. First, in scene number one, we're going to look at David's promise to God. We find that in verses one through seven. And then, secondly, in scene number two, we're going to look at God's promise to David. We find that in verses eight through 17. What kind of house does David offer to build the Lord? What kind of house does the Lord offer to build David and his sons and daughters? Let's take a closer look. We begin with scene one, David's promise to God. Verse one. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the Lord of God dwells in a tent. Now, in verse 1, we're told that God had given David rest from all his surrounding enemies. That might seem like a minor detail, but it's very significant. It's very important. David had been at war with King Saul for many, many decades, and before that, Israel had been at war with the Philistines for decades and decades. And in fact, if you go all the way back to the Exodus, you'll see that the people of Israel were constantly at war with the surrounding nations. All the original inhabitants of the promised land were at war with God and his people. Hundreds of years. Now, finally, we have rest. Now, finally, we have peace. With all the stress of war behind him, David finally has a moment to consider the plans and purposes of God. He finally has a moment to reflect on how he might live as the faithful king of Israel. So what was his first thought? David looked at his own house, and he thought, this place is pretty nice. Cedar was a very, very expensive uh, building material in that ancient world. It had to be imported from the land of Lebanon. And so he looks at his house, and he says, I'm living in a mansion. I'm living at the ancient equivalent of the White House. It's this incredible, beautiful home. And then he looked out the window, and he said, you know, God's house it's kind of a dump. It's kind of a disaster. It's, it's a tent. How can I live in a palace when God lives in a tent? Now, keep in mind that when the tabernacle was first constructed, it was a beautiful work of art, but it was also, at this point in the story, about 200 years old. It was covered with curtains, and so imagine the house of God being in a place with 200-year-old curtains. They would have begun to fray. They would have begun to become colored and ashen with age. Plus, they were constantly slaughtering animals in the tabernacle. And so the whole place probably smelled like a slaughterhouse. Now, imagine your grandma's house. She has 50-year-old curtains that smell like cats. This is much, much worse than that. 200-year-old curtains that smell like dead animals. Way worse. And so David thought to himself, this is ridiculous. 
how can I live in this house, this beautiful, wonderful palace, when the Lord my God lives in that house? That's not right. I will build a house for the living God. Now, meanwhile, Nathan the prophet, who at this point in the story is essentially the Billy Graham of Israel, the the nation's pastor, the pastor to the kings, this influential man, he says, I'm completely on board with this plan. Now, that's understandable because if you are a pastor and the richest man in town says, I want you to to, to construct a brand new, beautiful, state-of-the-art church facility for you, you say, yes, let's do it. Before you change your mind, let's break ground. What do you think? Do you think it was right for David to offer to build a house for the Lord? Does this building project sound like a good idea to you? Now, again, I'm a pastor, I am biased, so it's hard for me to be unbiased about this. I love beautiful buildings, and so I am firmly on Nathan's side here. Last year in this church, we installed hands-free faucets, and I can't even tell you how excited I was about hands-free faucets. I was like, yes, bring it, hands-free everything. Let's modify the place, let's build, let's build. What about God? What did he say? God said, hold on, David, not so fast. Verse 4, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up my people of Israel from Egypt until this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all my people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Here's the question. If, it is not, if it's not wrong to build a house for God, again, King Solomon, David's son, will build a temple for the living God, then why did God say no? Why does God say to David, a man after his own heart, I don't want you to build a house? Well, let me give you three reasons. First, the Lord values simplicity. The Lord values simplicity. In our culture, we tend to think bigger is better. Go big or go home. When it comes to everything in our lives, including the church, we want mega churches and mega buildings. We want the lights and the sounds and the smells and the colors. Whether we're talking about a a traditional space with stone walls and beautiful uh, stained glass windows, or whether we're talking about a contemporary space where everyone has Wi-Fi and there's an operational Starbucks in the fellowship hall. We want to glorify God by building glorious places where we might worship him. We want our spaces to reflect our heart for the glory of God. If our God is big and impressive, shouldn't our worship spaces be big and impressive? Well, maybe or maybe not. I don't think it's automatically wrong for us to build big, impressive buildings with big, elaborate lights and sounds and cameras. And Listen, frankly, if we had a fully operational Starbucks in the narthex of our sanctuary, I might never leave. 
I might just set up a cot in my office and sleep here most of the nights. I'd, I would have jitters from drinking like 20 lattes every day. So I'm not against Starbucks and I'm not against the lights and I'm not against the stained glass windows, of course. But ultimately, when we worship, it's not about the pageantry. It's not about the lights and the sounds and the excitement or the building. It's about our hearts. See, when we come to worship, the question is not, is my space beautiful? The question is, do I love Jesus? Do I value the God who created me? Do I ascribe worth? That's what worship is, worthship. Do I subscribe, ult- ascribe ultimate worth to my Savior and my King? Do we have simple childlike wonder and faith and joy as we enter the house of God with God's people. That's what matters. You know, worship can happen in, in a temple or a tabernacle or a tent. It can happen in places like the Crystal Cathedral in California or the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. or St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. It can also happen in a living room in a house church in China. It can happen in a simple outdoor space with dirt floors and barely enough covering to cover the chairs in a little tiny rural village in Mexico. It can happen where places where people use old ragged Bibles or perhaps no Bibles at all. It can happen where local people bake the bread every week for communion and use a common cup because They only have one communion cup that they can use for the Lord's Supper. You remember what God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. He said, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The tabernacle was simple. God's house was simple, and that's okay. Now, the second reason why God, I think, why God didn't want David to build this house is that the Lord values intimacy. See, God had designed the tabernacle for intimacy. God wanted to be with his people. This year I've been reading the chronological Bible in my Bible readings, and it just so happens in God's providence that I've been reading the book of Numbers. Now, there are a lot of stories in the book of Numbers. Some of them are a little bit difficult to understand, but one of the amazing things that you see in the book of Numbers is that As God's people are moving about through the wilderness, they set up camp, and whenever they set up camp, they put the tabernacle, God's house, in the middle of the people. All the tribes would arrange themselves kind of like a square around the outside of the tabernacle, but the point was that God's presence was right there in the middle of things. God wants to be central in the lives of his people. Why? Well, theologians call this the incarnational principle. In other words, God wants to be with his people. In one of the most famous passages about the coming of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 1, we read that the word, the logos, Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled among us. He set up his dwelling place among us, going so far as to even take flesh and bones to himself, a human nature to himself, so that he could be with his people. 
And the danger of permanent buildings then and now is that people can mistakenly, mistakenly believe that God lives in the building and not with his people. Now, while I absolutely believe that it is vital for our Christian life to gather together as God's people, whether in person or virtually online, in prayer, in worship, in fellowship, the goal is for us to gather together as God's people. God's people have always gathered together on the Lord's day to worship him together. It's also important to remember that God doesn't live in the building. That God is with us wherever we go. He's with us on Sunday mornings. He's with us on Saturday nights. He's with us on Monday mornings as well. Our God is everywhere. And because our God values intimacy, he wants to be with us. He didn't want David to build this temple until the people understood that. The third reason, I think, is that the Lord values authenticity. You know, in the ancient world, kings would often build temples in order to manipulate the gods. The thought was, if I build this elaborate temple for our god or gods, then those gods are essentially obligated to bless us. The gods will send the rain, the gods will give us protection from our enemies, we'll have health, we'll have wealth, we'll have prosperity. It was very much a quid pro quo, this for that relationship. In America, we call it the prosperity gospel, which, much to our shame, we have imported to nations or exported to nations all around the world. It's the same basic idea. That, we, uh, that the pagan idea is that we do something for God, and then God is therefore obligated to do something for us. So God becomes less the God of the universe and more of our business partner. We, we have transactional relationships with the God of the universe. God, by telling David, just wait. Wait to build this temple. Wait to build my house. Is telling him, I am not interested in, this kind, in that kind of quid pro quo, this for that relationship. I'm not interested in your prosperity gospel. I'm not interested in a self-interested exchange, a relationship, quote-unquote, where you attempt to manipulate me in order to get what you really want in life. Instead, he says, I want you to love me. I want you to have an open, honest, authentic relationship with me. In this case, the house that David wanted to build for God might get in the way of that. Now, here's the question before we move on to scene two. Do you have a simple, authentic, intimate relationship with God? A relationship with God that's not a, a quid pro quo relationship. A relationship with God where it's not about you building a house for God so that someday he'll build a house for you. Do you believe in a God who is merciful first? Do you believe in a God whose grace comes first. How do you have that kind of relationship with God? Well, before you build a house for God, God has to build a house for you. Scene two, God's promise to David. Verse 11, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
David said, God, I'll build you a house. God said, I'll build you a legacy. I'll build you a dynasty. God, David promised to build God a permanent building. And God said, I will give you an everlasting kingdom. Here are all the promises that God made to King David. There are five of them. He says, I will exalt you, verse 8. He says, I will strengthen you, verse 9. He says, I will give you a forever home, verse 10. He says, I will give you rest, verse 11. He says, I will give you a son, verse 12. Now, I just want to make a note before we look at some of the promises that God makes regarding Solomon, that all these promises are not necessarily universal in scope. All these promises, as we will see, are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, and so these are promises that we have which will be filled when Jesus comes again, and yet I think it's probably uh, unwise for us to universalize these promises and say that we can expect these things in this life. To look at our own life and say, well, why don't I have, have rest well, I must not be faithful. Why don't I have children? Well, perhaps I'm not part of God's covenant people. That is absolutely incorrect. These are specific promises made to a specific person, to David, which are ultimately fulfilled in the cosmic sense through Jesus. Here are more promises. Here are the promises that God made to King Solomon, David's son. Again, there are three of them. He says, I will give Solomon an everlasting kingdom. That's verse 13. He says, I will adopt Solomon into my family. That's verse 14. He says, I will forgive Solomon when he sins. That's verse 15. And then finally, in verse 16, we read, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Theologians call this the Davidic covenant. These are promises that God has made to David. These are promises that God has made to the sons of David, to Solomon, to Israel, to the church. And ultimately, these are promises made to the son of David, Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul told the Corinthian Christians, Greek Christians from the city of Corinth, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. How did God fulfill this promise? How did God build David a house? How does God turn us into living temples of the Holy Spirit? The answer is that God builds us up into living temples by tearing down the true temple Jesus Christ. In John chapter 2, we read, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? And then John notes, but the temple that he was speaking of was the temple of his body. Now, therefore, when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he'd said this, and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. 
Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I'm the true temple. He's saying, I am the house of God. He's saying, I am the place where heaven and earth meet. He's saying, through me, you find atonement for your sins. All of those slaughtered animals find their fulfillment in me. All of those curtains, those now 200-year-old curtains, which are separating you from the presence of God, those curtains will be torn in two from top to bottom through my death and resurrection. You have access to the very throne room of God. Through me, you have grace. Through me, you have mercy. Through me, you can live in the house of God forever. Because of Jesus, our bodies, corrupt and corruptible, become temples of the living God. Because of Jesus, the church is the house of the living God. God kept his promise to build David a house by tearing down the true temple, the son of David, and building a billion temples the sons and daughters of God. My encouragement to you as you close is not to let your plans for God obscure God's plans for you. As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being, up, being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true temple, and we become temples of the living God through him. Let's go to God in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your unshakable promises. We thank you for the simplicity of the gospel, the beauty of grace, the wonder of holiness. We thank you that you are not a God who lives in houses made by human hands, but that you are a God who has come to dwell with your people through Jesus and in your people through the Holy Spirit. Fill us now, Lord God. Give us grace and joy that we might live as your people, as living temples, until the day when Jesus comes again. Hear our prayer. We pray in his name. Amen.